Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the session Resisting Wokeness, Andrew Doyle and Douglas Murray in Conversation, which took place on Sunday the 3rd of November 2019 at the Battle of Ideas Festival. Right, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, I'm Andrew Doyle, this is Douglas Murray, and together we are... No, that's not funny. Um, I, uh, <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about Resisting Wokeness, um, and uh, yeah, it's more, it's going to be a conversation, conversation rather than uh, an interview. We're going to talk to each other about our approaches to this topic and then we're going to come out to you guys and you can come back to us uh, with your uh, comments, complaints, abuse, usual thing. Um, so w- the reason why I thought it'd be good for us to chat is that we've approached this in a very different way. So I've written a book, a satirical book in the character of Titania McGrath to try and uh, tackle and critique uh, what we call wokeness. And Douglas, you've written a book as well, which is just out and available at all good bookshops. Do you want to tell us about it? (laughs) What a hard opening question. Thank you, Andrew. Um, (laughs) uh, Very good to be with you and uh, uh, a great pleasure to be at the Battle of Ideas. Uh, I should also say, perhaps uh, at the opening, that I apologise for the extraordinary lack of diversity on the panel. (laughs) The... uh, the, uh, the heterosexual community isn't represented at all. <laughs> so that needs working on. Yeah. Um, Although people have said I'm a fake gay. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh that's one of my favorite allegations. Yeah. Uh, I actually know somebody who that allegation was made, uh, made about, uh, a young, very clever, slightly conservative figure who, when he was at university, uh, at the National Union of Students, was denounced uh, as a fake gay. <laughs> they said that he was pretending to be gay in order to smuggle conservative politics in. And I said to him at the time, I said, That's, uh, there's some real commitment in there. Yeah. You, uh... <laughs> I think if you're willing to do that, you should, that should be, that's fair going. Yeah, that's yeah good. No, absolutely. Because um... it is a lot of effort. It is exhausting. <laughs> I mean, particularly the way I do it. <laughs> I'd heard. Yeah. No, the, um, no, um, anyhow, but that proviso, that proviso passed. Uh, yes, uh, you kindly ask, yes, I just I wrote a book that came out last month uh, which looks at many of the same issues that you've been looking at. My book's called The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. And, oh, very kind. <laughs> um, gosh. Um, and, and in essence, what I wanted to do was to run straight at all of the landmines of our time. And uh, that's because I think we cannot live in a society so stupid that we can't talk about anything that matters for fear of offence. And I think there are two particular consequences from that. One is that we start to do very bad things because we pretend we know more than we do. We pretend to be much more certain than we have any right to be. And the second thing is that we end up living in this society which pretends we don't know things everyone knew till yesterday. And that if you combine these two things, you, you cover most of the social issues that are becoming hard and ugly. That's why I do them chapter by chapter. Gay, women, race, trans. Um, I'm sure there are other painful issues I haven't <laughs> danced over. But, uh, but those are the four that it struck me in recent years had become most weaponized, most impossible to talk about, that we'd made ourselves incapable of, of thinking about out loud. Uh, so yes, I decided to, to run at all of them and, and also to explain why I think this has come about, why, why it should have been in our own lifetimes in recent years, I think in the last decade and then weaponized in the last five years, why we would have found this position to have sped up, why, why we're all bemused that the news and politics and much else keeps on having these same issues underneath it so that the only point of political debate is to hope that you will find yourself in a studio with somebody who you can hope to dishonestly claim is being sexist or homophobic or racist or transphobic. And that that should end up being the preoccupation of politics. Yeah. I, I really hope that people read your book who are from the woke side. I mean, I really do, because I think, I think it might, it's, it, it's, it's an excellent book. It's very methodical and it's thorough. And I think... Uh, you know, we're, I think both you and I want people to reflect on what they're doing. You know, I think... Yes, I, I mean, your approach um, mainly is to laugh at them. Yes. <laughs> Which actually they don't like. How amazing they don't have a sense of humour. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
my approach is to laugh at them quite a bit, um, but also take, to take it deadly seriously. Um, because these things is, is a movement that takes people out all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was doing an event the other night with Lionel Shriver and she made the very important point. She said, we're here doing this because a lot of other people aren't. Yeah. Um, and I don't underestimate the difficulty for a lot of people in treading into this terrain or the vindictiveness and the vituperation that comes their way should they find themselves accidentally or otherwise on top of one of these landmine issues. So I, um, I, I try to explain where I think it's come from, why it's been particularly something of the last decade. To try to take it apart, to show that it doesn't work on its own estimation of itself. That is that even if we all tried to get in line with the claims that are being made, it still couldn't work because it's totally self-contradictory. So that's the first thing. But the second thing from that is to say, for God's sake, don't let's spend any of our lives doing this. Yeah. This, is, this is not a fair representation of a society. It's not a fair interpretation of a society. And it's not a fair estimation of ourselves as human beings because we are not just black or white, straight or gay or a man or a woman. So it's an unfair estimation of our own experience as human beings. It's also hugely degrading. To, to, I mean, we saw this the other day when Barack Obama made the point that we need to... He was asking for nuance, wasn't he? He was saying, you know, yeah. hu humanity is messy. People make mistakes. And this expectation from the woke crowd that there has to be ideological purity and that you should rake over things that people have said... And then in response to that, he's been, he's been labelled as anti-woke and a boomer. Uh, a boomer, that's right. He's, he's old. He's old. He made the fa fundamental mistake of ageing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and none of his critics will ever find themselves in this unfortunate position, I know. No. That's right. The New York Times said this was just a boomer view. It just goes to show there's absolutely nothing. You know, you can be, you can be the first black president. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You got old. Yeah, but also... Deal he, with it. He's also, uh, let's not forget, he's half white, and that's the problematic part. Right. That's, yes. where, it, that's where it comes on, from. Um, on occasion, this, this is the way to do him down as well. I, I did yeah. wonder whether that would happen, where people would start calling him half white. And, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, but, but it's, it's a really depressing... I wonder where this has come from. And I think, I, I, I sort of blame academia a little bit. You know, this thing that you were Wh talking... Why a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> well... So, I mean, if you go back to the sort of the, the, the Foucauldian stuff that was really popular back in the 80s and 90s, and there was a book by someone called Kate Millett called Sexual Politics, which was effectively just trawling through all the classics and sort of saying, this is sexist, that's homophobic, etc., etc., problematizing uh, literature. And that now seems to be a mainstream tactic. It's what you describe when, when people come into interviews and all they're trying to do is work out where you're being sexist and work. And this is... And when you do that to literature and art, that is a form of, I think it's a form of cultural vandalism. If all you can do is look for whether something is sending the right popular message, then what good are you? I, I, I well, again, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a form of incredibly proactive laziness, isn't it? Um, because if all of these texts from the past are, are not worth reading because they've made an error or the author is of the wrong type, then you don't need to contend with them. Yeah. You don't actually need to read. I realized this in a sort of astounding revelation I had recently when a, a young student said to me that he thought that Immanuel Kant had used the N-word. And I said, I don't think he did. <laughs> At least it doesn't seem likely to me. Uh, now, it's possible. I've got to look into this. It's possible that he... That but if he had, what would that mean? That well, we should therefore disregard the meant, categorical imperative? What I, I realised <laughs> well, was, of course, that it meant that this young man had no need to read Immanuel Kant, right. which is really useful because he's difficult. We go, huh? Do you know, I, th I saw that... Th so, you know this... Dana Schwartz, a novelist based in America, she tweeted the other day, she published an article saying why we need to destroy the Western canon. Yeah, but saying, by her book. But by her book. It was tagged to a, her book. Mm. And she was saying, you know, we need to get, because it's all white and male and therefore racist and, and patriarchal. And it does strike me as this kind of crabs in a bucket idea. Mm. It's, it's people who aren't very good. You know, she's not a good writer, but she mm. can now say, but don't read Hemingway. Right. She doesn't have to compete with that. Yes. She, you know, because, you know, so it's, she can bring everyone down to her well, level. You it, know? It's also, it, it, the whole thing is so reductive and offensive, on, again, on its own terms. I mean, 
One of the things I mentioned at one point in the matters of crowds is this whole thing of studies. I mean, to a great extent, as we all know, anything with studies in the title should not be taught. Um, <laughs> uh, or at least shouldn't be funded by a taxpayer. And uh, studies, however, did have a point at one stage. You could argue there are some that might have a point in the future. But the way in which black studies started, for instance, was plausibly, reasonably enough, an attempt to highlight writers and other figures who may not have had enough attention and who, who needed to be brought out from some obscurity that, that through, uh, um, through circumstance in the past, they found themselves in. The same thing with gay studies, to some extent. Well, it's quite hard now to pretend that there aren't very many well-known gay writers from history. But, um, but these things had a, uh, you could argue they had a utility. Where does it go wrong? It goes wrong very clearly when you get into whiteness studies because then whiteness studies is the only one that is intent on problematizing, not on, not on getting people out of history to try to highlight them and, and study them and, and reflect on them, but rather just to beat down on everyone who happens to have a particular skin pigmentation. Well, here's, here's the problem among others from this, is that no, no reasonable humane person wants any minority writer to be stuck in that silo. Right? Who wants James... If you said James Baldwin... He's one of my favorite black writers. No. James Baldwin, one of my favorite writers. That yeah. works. That works. I totally agree. I used to get annoyed by being called a gay comic. I thought, what, like, I mean... That is I'm, quite annoying. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is quite but, it, but it's, you know, you, you don't do the job... You don't tie it to your identity in that way or whatever that means. Well, well but here you put your finger on one of the key things. With, what if there are people who are told they should? Yeah. Who well, are told are. Who, exactly? This is dogma. This is this is indoctrination. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that, like me, very little to nothing of your sense of identity, self, or worth relies on the fact that you happen to be gay. None of it. Right. Now there are other people who are told that is the single signal yeah, yeah. signifying factor about you, and there is an agenda afterwards. So once, this is what I describe as the gay-queer divide, you know, that the gay just happens to be attracted to their own sex, whereas queer is being attracted to your own sex is just the beginning of attacking the patriarchy and capitalism and bringing down, you're like, why, I didn't get that memo. No, and, no. But the same argument is made in each of these other ones. Being a woman is not just about being a woman. It is about a follow-on set of political demands. Yeah. This is the politicization of everything. But there are people for whom th this, this is, whether we like it or not, this is a, a foundational issue that their, about their identity. And that's why this ends up getting fought, among other reasons, in such a bitter manner. Because if you are attacking something or seem to be attacking something, which is at the root of somebody's sense of their self, then of course they react like a maniac. Yeah. But I, don't, I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that those things aren't important to your life, you know, the, being gay or being a woman or, or whatever. But to tie it to your whole worldview, that you see everything through that prism, it feels to me the opposite of what we used to believe. You know, like we used to go on about the, we're born this way, you know, this isn't, you know, now it's, now it's, not, now it's something about choice. It's about you, you, you choose your identity. You know, this is something that you should be able to do. I, I don't, I, I think there's some damage in that. I see like being gay as being left-handed. Mm being five foot ten or whatever. You know, it's a kind of vital statistic. It's something that's neither here nor there. Well, th one of the reasons, as you know, that I argue that this is a particularly dementing era is because the contradictions, we don't focus on them, we don't analyse them enough, but they're just there and we sense them. And one of the contradictions from this is precisely this thing of can you choose things or not? And uh, we, we, we tell ourselves two things simultaneously. So... Those of you who've read The Madness of Crowds will know this, but I'll do it very quickly. But um, we all rights claims in recent decades have tried to embed themselves and argue for themselves by arguing that they are hardware issues. That is, they're a fundamental thing you can do nothing about. They're the nature of the program. And then there are other issues which are software issues. And by and large, in our societies, in a country like Britain, a country like America, uh, to some extent, uh, if you want to get sympathy or support, you argue that you're hardware. That, that, that for instance, when a, a religious cleric says lifestyle choice, the gays say no, born this way. Um, and trans is doing born this way at the moment. And the problem is that, is that it's understandable, it's uh, debatable, uh, as I show, but it's impossible to do that simultaneously 
with the demand that being a woman is a choice. That one of the most distinctive hardware things of our species, sex, chromosomes, is simply a performative issue. Because that means that the only people actually born hardware in the right body are trans people. Yeah. But that's why I think it's funny. Ultimately, it's funny. If, if you have a, a movement that is telling you that gender is a complete social construct, but then at the same time telling you but trans people are born in the wrong body. Right. So you can't, you can't be a social constructionist and a biological essentialist at the right. same time. Right. And to try and do both those things simultaneously makes me laugh. I think that's a... That's mm. a I mean, yes. it, is, it is a movement that is so full of contradictions, but actually revels in those, in those contradictions, I think. Well, it doesn't see the contradictions as a problem. I mean, I say I think this is a little bit of a glimpse of the Marxist substructure of some of this, which is that the contradictions are, are to sort of be embraced in a way. Uh, of course, there are contradictions. We will have to embrace them, get over them. Well, the Enlightenment was just the product of white men. Uh, yes, and I give examples of people saying not just that, but for instance, the idea of truth is a white construct. Yeah. And that is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that, is is. Just, that is just terrifying. And, you know, that's why in the race chapter in this book, I, I, it's, a, it's a warning. But this, it's a warning to say, if you want to play this hardware software game, you want to wait till you get onto race with that and you are in a whole world of nightmares. It is deadly serious. It is deadly serious. And I think, I, I don't want people to think I'm being flippant by mocking no. it. But actually, in a way, I think to mock it is essential because it's mm. not, you'll never convert the zealots. You'll never really convert the extreme identitarians. But what you can do is sow the seeds of doubt on those yes. who are wavering or, you know, we're all ingesting this media day by day. Most of us are like, is, can this be right? Can this be real? And if we're making those things figures of fun, then hopefully yes. more people will have the courage to say, you know. Yes. And also, of course, if, if, if you can laugh at it, the great thing about humour, what you, what you do, and what you do particularly as Titania, is, is the laughter of recognition. Is people, people can be very easily bullied into new orthodoxies and dogmas that they know they, that there must be something up with them. Yeah. But if you make them laugh about it, then that's the safest way to start. Uh, there's just one thing I'd add about that, which is the deadly seriousness of this in people's lives. I mean, I am, I think, like you, in, 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 in a fortunate position. For once, I'm happy to play the privilege game. If, if, if like me, you're a writer, uh, you are responsible to your readers, to some extent, and to your editors, to some extent. Um, most people are in a much more difficult position in their lives. Anyone who works in the public sector, anyone who works in government, anyone who works increasingly in large swathes of the private sector knows that this stuff is coming for them and that they are being asked to believe things which they are finding it incredibly hard to believe. But unless there are people laughing at this, pointing out the absurdities and so on, there will just be this endless agreement and agreeing with things that are not true. And the reason I mind this is because I know, and we know from the, I'm not saying this is a totalitarian system yet, but we know from the histories of totalitarianism that totalitarianism demands that people believe things and agree to things they know not to be true. Why? To demoralize them. To demoralize them. And I have no doubt that if as a society people are bullied into agreeing to things they do not and cannot believe, and are told to say things that are patently absurd. It's what happens after that that I mind. So what, what do we call this? Because I think it's really important to draw a distinction between the political correctness movement of the 80s and 90s, which was a, a sort of messy attempt to reach a kind of socially agreed discourse on the way that we're going to talk to each other in public and in the workplace and in education and all the rest of it. And broadly speaking, that had some very good outcomes. What you've just described is, is veers into a kind of authoritarianism. It's a different thing. And I think a lot of the, the reasons why people attack those of us who critique woke culture is they say, well, you're one of these PC gone mad brigade people. You, you know, you're making a big fuss about nothing. And they conflate the, the two movements. I actually think they're quite distinct. And I don't know what to call this now. I, I don't call it political correctness, personally. I, don't, no. I, I say woke movement or woke culture, but now, of course, the strategy is uh, 
to claim that that is just a right wing slur against social justice. How, how about how about seeing the whole thing as a form of overcorrection? I mean, I, I'm trying to be as benign as possible in yeah. my reading here, but let's say because this is all very complex, we know this. Have there, has there been racism in the past? Yes, of course. Has there been homophobia in the past? Yes, of course. Have women been equal to men in the past? No, of course they haven't. Now, there's a tendency, it seems to me, that if you want to correct an injustice, including particularly historical injustice, you might want to go past equal for a time. You might wish to go to, for instance, better. Or you might not be satisfied with absolutely the same, but say, let's make up for some lost time. Let's make, let's make them squeal a bit. It's a very understandable human emotion, the retributive emotion. I think that's almost certainly one of the things that's going right. on at the moment. Um, it was always there. It was always there. Can we settle for equal or do we have to go to better? Well, I liked your metaphor in the book when you talk about the train at the station, that the train's mm. coming to a station and slowing down, and then just at the last second, the driver throws all the coal in and it goes speeding off way past its destination because it felt like that. I think you and I have a similar age. So, we, you know, you can remember when we were growing up, we didn't, we, we were reaching a kind of color blindness. We didn't notice when there was a film with a black actor or a film with a woman in a prominent uh, lead. No, it wasn't an issue in of itself. It wasn't something that was remarkable, you know, and I feel like the momentum was in the, that's not to say there wasn't racism and sexism and all the rest of yes. it. Yes, I mean, there's a critique, but, there's the obvious but, critique of that is we wouldn't have noticed it as much. But, because, but my, you know. my, my female friends didn't notice it either, you know, and that, that's, that's the thing. I mean, it, we, it wasn't a big thing that Sigourney Weaver is a major female action right. hero right. lead. It wasn't remarked upon. Uh, what was remarked upon is how great her performance was. Right. And Whereas, you didn't see the proto-identity politics movement just rejoicing in the femaleness of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> well, she was... She but was, at least she's a woman. No, but she was a masculine... That's what they would say, right. isn't it? That was their thing, that she was, she was, well, she was enact, enacting maleness. Did you hear this recently about the... Um, there was an, an attack. Uh, um, in uh, yeah, there was an attack in America, and it was um, uh, an attack from I think it was a Latino person attacking a black person. They said that this was this was someone enacting whiteness, so that the race. The right. ra so it's not. So it's all performative. Yeah, so no, there are cases of Hispanic white supremacy. Actually, there've been quite a few. Uh, there've been quite a few of those claims made in America in recent years. It is yeah. quite astonishing. So, so that's why this is not the same as political correctness. These are people who actually are divorcing the reality of your skin color, gender, sexuality well, from your, your skin color, gender, and sexuality. Yeah, as you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm obsessed by these cases, as you know, because they happen in each one of the issues I write about. Um, it happened with. It happened a little while ago. You mentioned the the, the, the Thatcher example, but it, it, it's happened in. It happened. You can see it very clearly in recent years with the famous career trajectory of Jermaine Greer, where she gets ch chucked out of the Church of Feminism by some people, who just say Jermaine Greer isn't a feminist. <laughs> Interesting. Um, but then it happens to other people. Peter Thiel. Uh, Silicon Valley tech billionaire comes out for Trump in 2016 is denounced by the main gay magazine in America as not being gay. They say he may sleep with men, but in no way is he gay. <laughs> Again, I mean that's putting in the groundwork. So, but but they say, but you can't be if you're gay. You you have a set of political views. Now this this starts to get very dark though. Kanye West, when he first comes out in support of Candace Owens, then has Tanahisi Coates and the Atlantic writing a piece saying that Kanye isn't black. And this, this, is a, this is a very troubling theme. Uh, there's an example I give in the book of Thomas Sowell. There's a, those of you who are fans of academic um, humiliation, as I am, <laughs> connoisseurs of academic humiliation, uh, will relish the fact that the, the, the example I give from the London School of Economics uh, book review site, a few years ago they reviewed a book of Thomas Sowell's rather late, about three years after it had come out, but... Uh, and the reviewer, um, uh, uh, I, I'm going to try to be as charitable as possible, <laughs> a, a little-known Welsh academic in a different discipline, um, reviewed this book and castigated it. He said that Thomas Sowell was using 
you know, what the dog whistles. They love dog oh, yeah, whistles. Love the dog whistles. Always forgetting yeah. that if you hear the whistle, you're the dog. But anyway, <laughs> but they do. They, 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 he does. He does. He does all the dog whistle stuff. He's doing dog whistles. You can read between the lines. You can see that Thomas Sowell's actually saying this. But the, it has one of the great erratas of all time at the bottom of the article. To their enormous credit, the <laughs> School of Economics has. Um, there's a deletion here, but an earlier version of this argument of this article included the words easy for a rich white man to say. <laughs> uh, maybe he hadn't even seen the dust jacket of the book. Yeah. But, but this is fascinating because, again, we get to this absolutely crucial bit. This is an attempt, and this is why I'm, I just say, like you, whoa, yeah. don't do this. This is an attempt to claim that everything in our lives is dictated by characteristics we have no say over. And it is terrifying where that goes, because what this means is black is a synonym for radical left wing. Woman, synonym for radical left wing. Gay, synonym for radical left wing. Trans, we'll get back to you, but for the time being, synonym for radical left wing. Does nobody see a problem with this, a backlash down yeah. the road to this, among much else? It's so about the elimination of the individual and sort of like the idea that we should be assumed to believe certain things on the basis of something we cannot control. I find, I find it really, really scary. And I also find it quite, I find it quite paternalistic. I find it quite patronizing. You know, uh, when you hear people complain about certain types of jokes because they might offend gay people, for instance, well, maybe I can handle myself. And I don't need someone sort of yes. controlling that. And also, as we know, just because something's offensive doesn't mean it isn't possibly no. true. In fact, quite often things that are offensive are offensive because you, you sense a, a whiff of, of truth in it and you'd yes. rather skip over it. Yes. And that's fine if it's just to do with politeness. But the problem is, of course, is that there are elements in this which you get some way past politeness. That's the reason I did, I did trans last and try to, and this is why I hope that people who generally disagree with what I'm saying do at least take on board what I'm arguing in that chapter in particular, which is that one of my editors says, it's a very good, useful rule of thumb, says every era in human history has done things which we look back on and are insane. You know, why did they do that? Sometimes it's social issues. You know, Why, why did the uh, Victorians put children up chimneys? Exactly. Why didn't they know it might be bad for the child? Uh, sometimes it's much bigger world historical things. Why did they, why did they fall into war in 1914? Didn't they know it was going to be the Great War of 1914 to 1918? You know, for instance. And and but but since every era has done things we look back on and are just agog, assume unless we've become incredibly virtuous, smart, and filled with foresight in recent years, assume we're doing some things too and try to work out what they are now. Now, I submit that one of these things is w at least somewhere within the trans argument. And I explain what I think is a plausible, humane, reasonable rights claim within trans. But I also say, don't think it's obvious that that goes on to experimenting on children and assume that successive generations after us will not look back and think, wow, wow. I mean, just look at that bit of footage the other day from the LGBT town hall of the Democrats when a, a, a mother is standing there beside a child and the child introduces themselves to Elizabeth Warren and says, I'm a nine-year-old trans child. And Elizabeth Warren and everyone else in the room just whoops, whoops. I, I, I think we can, we can stick to being polite where and when we can, but this is where an unwillingness to actually interrogate complex, difficult, tricky terrain leads you. It leads you to the situation of everyone cheering at an idea we didn't have a few years ago and needs to be interrogated properly. I, I wonder whether, I think where I might part company slightly is I, I think, as opposed to looking back on this and seeing where, I think we know this is wrong, generally as a society. I think we know it at the moment. I think we have a bizarre situation where the minority of social justice activists or those with that mindset seem to have so much power and ability to, to dominate the, the media narrative that we're, 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 we're in this kind of illusory world where we think this is the norm. I think the vast majority of people, and this is something I actually I wanted to ask you about because I think we are, 
I think we're winning. I think there's something to be very optimistic about. Oh, for sure. I, I think, I, I don't believe that we are living in this uh, 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 oppressive matrix world that they think we are. And I, and I think therefore it is doomed to die. Um, I agree. But there might be an awful lot of pain to get through first. I, I come back to this thing. If you are working in government or in a large number of companies, an increasing number of companies and elsewhere, you are already stuck in the matrix of not being able to have employment decisions based on competency, but at the very least significantly dominated by characteristic discussions. And once that is embedded, the truth is that we can laugh about it all we want, but if they decide to stick with the dogma, we're screwed. So that's my, that's my question is how do, we, how do we change that when they're already so embedded in, in, our, in the powerful institutions, when we have quangos that are mm. deciding which adverts are good for us to see and you know, all that sort yeah. of stuff. It's so, it's so commonplace. Yes. And we don't have people in parliament who are willing to stand up and make an anti-woke argument. The problem is, is that it's, it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? I mean, the, it, you're right. There are very good reasons to be positive. One, by the way, is simple. The, the, the title of your, um, your book, uh, Woke, a, a few years ago, woke was used as a term of um, approbation. Or let, a few, well, let me correct myself. A few years ago, when it started to sidle in, there were people, quite a lot of people, who would like to be thought of as woke. Oh, yeah. The term was, was positive. Yes. And then at some point, not unconnected with your own fury of a creation running straight at the general public <laughs> like an avenging angel, people didn't want to be thought of as woke. It, it took on other connotations. It was a pejorative to it. And I think that in itself is a positive because it shows that these things can be turned around against people, that, that maybe you don't want to be seen as that. <laughs> well, my favourite was, was Afua Hirsch in The Guardian who wrote an article saying that the word woke is just a word that right-wingers use to, describe, to, to denigrate mm. social justice. And I replied to that tweet with a, a number of screenshots from The Guardian where woke was in the headline. Yes. How, how to find Mr. Woke. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. so, so, you know, well, maybe the Guardian is right-wing. No, I don't they, know. They like, create, they, <coughs> maybe. They create something and then pretend it's a figment of your imagination. Yeah, that's it. And uh, they're always going on about gaslighting, but they seem to do it more than anyone. The, 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 <laughs> the number of terms now being thrown out, gaslighting. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyhow. It's, it's, there are reasons to be positive about it. I just come back to this thing. If you're not in the, if you're not in the fortunate position of being independent-minded and roughly speaking, self-employed person. It's just, there's a lot more pain to keep going through. And, and yeah. I, but I come back to this thing, why, because you mentioned the politicians, why is it so hard for a politician to, to withstand this? And I think there are reasons that are reasonable, as it were. I mean, one is none of them want to be caught on the wrong side as many of them were on, for instance, gay issues mm -hmm. in the past. They, they, they feel, again, this might be, trans may well be simply an over, uh, caught up in the overcorrection about gay. I think that's what's right. happening. Um, uh, but nobody wants to be caught on the wrong side of a, 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 what might turn out to be you know, the wrong side of history. And, and, and so they, but, but here's a diff, another thing that the, there's simply a cost-benefit analysis. And I've, I've had to spend quite a lot of my life with politicians of all different persuasions and rowing with them and, and, and falling out with them and occasionally agreeing with them. But one thing I have noticed that I've always underestimated is the extent to which in politics a cost-benefit analysis goes on far more than I ever recognized. I could never understand why there were certain things that politicians wouldn't say. And it always comes down to the fact that there's very little to gain for it and a disproportionate amount potentially lose, so that they weigh up, they simply weigh it up. And every time there's a crowd stampede on one of these issues, they weigh up. I could, I could say something everyone knew till yesterday, I could say it today and my career could be over tomorrow. Should I do it? The contrary position is, we all know we used to believe that yesterday. 
We all know most people don't believe that today, but we are being bullied today into saying it. And so in order to survive till tomorrow, I'll join in. That's... I, I get that. I, I mean, to give an example, I think most of us know that if we want to live in a free society, the price we pay for that is some people say bad things, mm. say offensive things. But what would a politician have to gain to stand up in Parliament and say, we need to repeal our hate speech laws? Because, of course, the inevitable assault on that will be yeah. you are therefore siding with the, the racists who well, want to say the horrible thing. It wouldn't thing. even be that. It would be you must but, be a racist. But you yes. must be trying to do racism again. But on principle, given that we live in a country where 3,000 people are arrested every year for things they've said online that are deemed to be offensive, then this is something we should be addressing, surely. Do you know, I don't think this country minds about free speech all that much. I don't think it's... Oh, I hope you're wrong. I'm just saying, <laughs> I just don't think it does. I think we sort of pretend we do, and a small bunch of weirdos of us do. <laughs> but I'm by, one of them. <laughs> by and large, yeah, yeah, you and me both. Uh, but outside that weirdos brigade, the recent history suggests people are quite happy to be quiescent and would rather have a quiet life than stand up for this kind of principle. I come back to this thing, I'm forever comparing this country... Um, um, negatively to France in these regards. But, you know, when the, uh, when the Me Too thing started, and everyone knew that at the beginning these are some serious allegations that were being made and criminal charges to be brought and a, a correction was needed. But when, as you could see quite early on, the whole thing started to overreach and you got cases like the Ansari case in America where comedians basically had a very unfortunate date, but it doesn't mean he should never be allowed to leave the house again. Um, when these things happen, in Britain, basically, people did keep their heads down. We had nothing like the um, 100 prominent French women from all walks of life, including various friends of mine, among others, and there were people like Catherine Deneuve, very prominent actresses and philosophers and thinkers in France. A hundred French female intellectuals and cultural figures sign a, um, a letter saying... No, the sexes need to get on. We cannot criminalise flirting. This has gone too far. You couldn't find 100 women in this country to do that. I'm sorry, but you couldn't. Not of that level of prominence. Everyone in this country keeps their heads down on these things. It's been my experience throughout my life. It's been the experience of this country and each of the major free speech wars in recent years that, generally speaking, we continue to pretend that the people who are pointing to the, the issues... If they just went quiet and went away, we could all have our comfortable, quiet life again. Can I, can I give an example of something that might counter that bit? Yeah, uh, please. Just, just so that... And this, I think, points to something. I, I think there has been a kind of cultural shift. If we go back to the Blair era, if we go back to New Labour, in 2005, they tried to introduce the uh, Religious Discrimination Act. And what that would have meant was that if, anyone, if mm. a comedian made a joke about a religion or mocked anyone's religion then uh, they would have been liable to prosecution. Now, that didn't pass, but by a very small One minority. One vote, because Tony yeah. Blair himself didn't turn up. <laughs> Always a good thing. And, um, Ro and we had the might of Rowan Atkinson on our side. So this was my point. So we had basically a, a concerted effort amongst prominent comedians spearheaded by Rowan Atkinson to say, no, this is too much. This is a sledgehammer to crack a nut. This is not something we should be getting behind. Fast forward to our time. And you have the Count Dankula case, the Nazi pug case, where someone makes an obvious joke in a video and he's prosecuted and that goes to court, two-year trial, found guilty. Comedians, totally silent. Now, what I'm saying is I think something has changed in that intervening time period. Well, the, the, this is why the target selection on this is so damn clever. The problem is, is that most people don't have time in the day to work out if the Glaswegian... YouTube shit poster is a Nazi or not. Right. My, my presumption in most cases is not to assume everyone is a Nazi until they prove otherwise, <laughs> but we do live in a culture which takes the contrary point of view on that. Assume Nazism on everyone's behalf until they prove absolute yeah. ideological cleanliness. And we don't, we don't know quite how you do it, but how did the Count Dank, how does the Count Dank, Dank guy get out of it? He, he appears to be trying to bring back Nazism through the means of his girlfriend's dog, which yeah. is weird. <laughs> well, particularly since the Gestapo arrested a man during the war for teaching its dog to teaching their dog to do a Nazi salute. <laughs> so, the, like, but even the Gestapo let that go. But, <laughs> but the Scottish judiciary, they took it all the way. You know, they took it all the way. Um. I mean, I mean that's a very funny one because the. The uh, Cybercrime Intelligence Unit investigated him for two years, read all his emails, all his texts. They found no evidence whatsoever of far-right leanings. But because the Guardian's got a hunch, 
you know, we just assume. Well, it. but but this this is a this is a this is a serious problem built into this, because the few again the few the few weirdos among us, um, most of whom will be here over the course of this weekend, will will stand up for the Nazi pug themed Glaswegian shit poster guy. On the principle, and because then you have to look into a bit, but assuming that most people don't have the time or the energy to do that, they just think, I don't know that I want to do it, because otherwise, if he does turn out to be a Nazi, sure, which again, I, I don't think he does, but if he does, then you're stuck with Nazi pig, pug, dog, salute guy. And yeah. then, well, what was the <laughs> point of that? It does, it makes it seem so frivolous, doesn't it? All this stuff is about such silly things, but actually the principle is so serious. It isn't about a dog and a salute. It's about what it represents, you know? And, and the, the problem I have, and I have dis I've discussed this a little bit recently, is how could we... See, because this happens an awful lot. This has happened an awful lot. And in my life, whenever it's happened to somebody I know, I've always come out fighting for them as hard as I can. Uh, it happened recently to my friend Roger Scruton. It happened some years ago to my friend Ayan Hasi Ali. Um... And I always fight to defend them because of my friends, and I know it's a lie. But here's the problem. Most people aren't in that situation. Most people don't have anyone who can come out and fight on their side, or they don't have anyone with platforms to come out on their side, or with any, any credibility, as it were. Um, and, 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 they don't, and the person who the accusations are being made of doesn't have any significant body of work to go to. So you just don't know. I mean, there was a case with the Asda supermarket worker recently who, who, who was fired for, for liking this Billy Connolly video. And of course, well, that also demonstrates the retreat. I mean, Billy Connolly makes one joke about Islam 15 years ago or 10 years ago or something. And it's so unusual that it occasionally goes around the internet again as people, you know, just are quite pleased that there's a guy laughing at suicide bombers because nobody else has the guts to do that, which is pretty damn amazing just to start with. But this, this thing goes around the internet sometimes. It goes around and the guy at Asda likes it. Bang, he's fired. Well, again, the guy at Asda isn't in a circle of writers and thinkers yeah. and, and doesn't have... And then you're like, do I have time to dig through the Asda supermarket workers' back... Facebook of course, stuff. Yeah. This is why I think we're quite privileged in a way that we, we do say what we want and we can. But I always think about this. If I was still working as a teacher, I wouldn't make jokes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tweet the way that I tweet. Well, this, here's, here's one way you could start, you could start to address this. Everybody, everywhere, stand up for your mates yeah, when you know totally they're being agree. lied about. Yeah. Always do that. Yeah. And, you know, if more people around each of these cases that could happen with... Maybe we get somewhere. I think that's a really good time. Should we take it out to the audience? Let's do it. Uh, oh, loads of hands. Okay. Who do you like the look of most? No, no, no. I, oh, you, you do it because... Oh, okay. I... Uh, okay, we'll go uh, here. Could you, do, would you mind standing up when you ask the question so that we can uh, get your Yeah, for sure. Image. What was it about me you like the look of? Uh, <laughs> um, that, was a, that was a very... Wow. Uh, yeah, no. Very suggestive opening. Let's, uh, we'll talk <laughs> afterwards. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, Douglas, so I loved both your books. I'm 20, I've got to be honest, I'm 20 pages away from completing uh, Madness of Crowds, but <laughs> I think I get the gist. I'm, I am going to finish it. <laughs> no, there's a um, big twist at the end. Yeah, big twist. <laughs> <laughs> he was I, dead all I, along. I'm a lady. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no, um, so your first book was obviously immigra largely immigration. Uh, your most recent book is about the problematic identity politics and the identities and so it seems you're at the, with the most recent books hitting the sort of difficult conversations so I wonder what what is it are you going to continue that theme and if so is it going to be like climate change or what is the next difficult thing to be tackled gosh um let me just very quickly, thank you for the question, excellent question, with one corrective, you tread on a site authorial sore point. I, actually, I've written five books. It's just it's the last two that have sold particularly well. <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, I regret that my book on Northern Ireland didn't uh, fall off the shelves, fly off the shelves, it did fall off the shelves, it didn't, <laughs> didn't fly. Um, but, um, but no, the, uh, my last two, you're right. I, well... If you are interested in taboos and dogmas 
And if you are, for whatever reason, wired not to mind treading on them, this is a great time to be alive. <laughs> it's a really great time to be alive. Um, and, and I just think that dogmas and orthodoxies tell you so much about the time you're living in. You just, it's, it's like archaeology, like living archaeology. You just, you see everything that, of what's actually going on in our society by looking at the things that you're not meant to talk about. I think that the other thing is, of course, is that really what I want to do is, is not that I think we just need to talk about them and say any old crap. It's that I, I think we need to be able to interrogate and contend with the difficult issues in a reasonable manner. And I tried to do that. There are, yes, there are, oh, are there some left? <laughs> um, I'm thinking about them. Yeah. <laughs> um, just the lady at the back there? Uh, on the, yeah, there we go, on the far right. Not the far right, you know. <laughs> it's most of the audience, probably. I'm a woman, I can't be on the far right. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, and actually, that was a point I was going to make because um, we, in my last session, I went to the one on toxic culture in um, politics, and um, Dolan Cummins, who was on the platform, said that in the past the left would be on a march singing a song: "We hate the Tories, we hate the Tories, we hate the Tories, Tories, we hate you." And then you'd kind of join them because you also hate the Tories, so therefore you must be left wing. And I really agreed with your point about the fact that, you know, if you're black, you're left wing. You're a radical left winger. And so those people who are black who support the right wing, they're, um, you know, uh, uh, going against the cause. Um, but I wanted to just ask a question. I am a teacher, so there are lots of things that I'm not allowed to say, including plastics in the ocean isn't the biggest problem that the children face. Um, but I did have a child. I'm a primary school teacher. I teach year six. And um, I had a child last year who was LGBT. And we had a difficult conversation in the summer term where we said to her, we're not going to let you change your name on the register because we have four-year-olds in the school that we need to, we would have to explain it all to everybody in the school. It's not a good time for you to do this. Wait till you go to secondary school and, you know, then you can explore it a bit more. But I had lots of conversations with her mum um, who said, don't tell her dad because they hadn't talked about it yet. But the, the biggest problem that I think professionals and parents um, are coping with in terms of this sort of issue is the question of um, suicide, um, the worry of suicide and the worry of mental health. And I just wondered whether you'd kind of found out anything about um, how this feeds into the woke culture. Because as a parent, if your child says, if you don't let me do this, I'm going to commit suicide, where do you go with that? And as a teacher, where do you go with that? Because the last thing you want to do is find that a child has committed suicide and you feel like it's your fault and I think that's that, that mental health thing and the suicide thing is where these things become quite um, powerful I think Douglas you'll know more, you've done more research into I, that I, I spoke to uh, quite a lot of people for this book who themselves had transitioned or started transitioning and stopped or and also the parents of people who had and um, I now fairly regularly find at events and other things people coming up to me who are in this position. Um, the first thing is, I think that down the road we will discover that there is some crossover of mental illness and what we put into part of the trans thing. Um, and that I think we're going to discover that autism in particular, I'm not saying that's the same thing as mental illness, but there's a crossover of autism with trans claims in particular. And that's already, I just, I've, I've, just in my own research, I've come across too many cases of this. A child is, is diagnosed to be autistic and somewhere down the road then says trans. Um, th so this needs really careful picking apart. As for this specific thing, look, the, uh, the idea in Britain and America at the moment is you have to affirm that once a child says they're trans, you have to affirm because everything that isn't affirmed, I have a quote from an American doctor who says this, very clear. She says, it, uh, what are the, what's the price of not affirming your child's identity? It's not having a child. <laughs> Agree with me or your child will commit suicide. Wow. What a thing to just wave through. Uh, my own view would be on this. I think the right thing, the child of that age and the school should not decide to do a free fall. I think there's far more trauma in my own 
my own experience of looking at this, there's far more trauma in all of the other children being told that at any point they may change sex than in trying to hold that line at least during the school years. Um, and I think that we have a big problem as a society if we're held hostage by people threatening their own lives at us. It's, this is a really tricky one. I don't need to tell you that. But in most situations, if somebody says, do what I want or I may kill myself, we try to be understanding, but we're not infinitely so. Like We're not completely blackmailed into anything they want us to be blackmailed into by that. This is a hellish area. I don't envy all the teachers and others who have to deal with it at the front line. I think really, we, for me, the, the problem is we haven't, had, we haven't been able to have the conversations. And I think particularly when it comes to children. I saw um, a documentary about trans kids, which was on the BBC. And there was a, uh, an American couple and, and the man was saying, I love looking at my, my child now because my, I see my little girl running. I don't have to look at my little boy mincing about. And, and, and what, what, what is really happening there is he's fixing a gay kid, isn't he? I mean, that's, that, and I do, I do worry about this idea that there's a kind of rehabilitated homophobia at the, at mm. the bottom of this, yes. that, that, that uh, really a tomboy could just be, I mean, for my view, what is wrong with a boy behaving in traditionally masculine ways, or, a, or sorry, boy behaving in a traditionally feminine way, mm. or a girl behaving in a traditionally masculine way, if, if we really, you know, we, we shouldn't be trying to fix, mm. because actually, actually this stuff that, about, about, someone saying they don't fit into a traditional gender. This is very conservative. Mm. I think there's a really conservative yes. view of gender at the heart of the trans ideology. Yeah. And that, um, we need to have those... We just haven't had the discussion. This is it. The trans thing runs against gay and it runs against women, and that's why it's causing so much pain. Because it's the same thing with the non-binary thing, which I don't believe in. Um, the non-binary thing says, I'm a male, but I'm feeling a little bit, you know, female mm. today. What is that? Yeah. What is that? Well, we, we used to call that sexism. Right. I mean, but there, there was a video with Sam Smith saying, I, I've realised there's a woman within me. And what he's doing is pouting and dancing right. like a whore. Right. So, so that's, what he, that's what he thinks being a woman is. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. Why don't we take two... We should go to the back. Go to the back, absolutely. So right, right at the back with the blue top and the white shirt. It's very nice. Well, I st uh, is this working? Yeah. Uh, I started working on um, or looking at the trans issue uh, back in 2015 um, because I was invited to do something on gender-neutral parenting here. And I discovered all this stuff. And what I discovered and what I think that this is about um, is I discovered that by that time, all of the professional um, ethics standards, all of the kind of you know, laws that are now being brought to bear on this issue in the States had already been written or had already been accepted. Um, and it was, I, I, I think that ultimately this is about the, repl the um, replacement of social norms with bureaucratically um, imposed social norms. Um, and I think that what happened in the States um, is that after um, the successful campaign for gay marriage, you had this vast infrastructure of yeah. campaigners um, who wanted something else to do. Yeah. And so, you know, literally by 2015, the um, ethical recommendations of the American uh, Association of Psychologists said that if you cannot affirm your patient's uh, uh, gender identity, you should not be treating that patient. It's just incredible. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I agree. Um, uh, let's, um, let's take, we'll, we'll wrap let's it in with one, other, one or two others. I saw the... Um, is, that, is that gentleman there with the green lanyard? Thanks very much. <clears throat> Just on the question of identity politics gen generally, I mean, there is a real ethical question about whether, I mean, some will say mocking the, these tendencies is, is in danger of, of ignoring real injustices. And it's possible that it is, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't mock it. But on the specific question of identity politics, there's something I've noticed in the rhetoric of this, which is that certain attacks, be they said to be transphobic, homophobic, or whatever, are attacks on who I am. 
and it's the it is this yes. word who that's doing the work. It's get, been smuggled into public discourse for quite a long time now. You're attacking who I am. Now, in a way, you can say, okay, it's just a, another way of saying you're attacking something that's true of me. You're attacking what I am. But actually, the undertow of the, the undercurrent of this is that you're you're posing a kind of existential threat to me. Yes. And you're, you're actually annihilating me. So you find some people, I mean, a minority of activists, but some, you're denying my right to exist, mm -hmm. as if you're actually being accused of plotting murder, conspiracy to murder. Uh, it's not literally meant, but that's the, the thought. And that, I think, whatever we can say, whatever reservations we might have about some of the things, um, about some of the complexities of this issue, there is something uh, in the rhetoric that I find quite worrying. Shall, shall we take one more question one. Then, and then? Yeah, uh, at the back there, just to the... Yeah, a fantastic um, uh, discussion, by the way. Uh, Frank Ferudi, I was reading Frank Ferudi today, and he says that <clears throat> he says that um, over seventy percent of undergraduate students are reporting that they have stress or anxiety. So it follows on from my colleague, my friend over here, about educating education. So I just wonder whether this relates to this thing about this whole notion of being woke relates to anxiety and stress in young adults. Well, why don't we just uh, pick on whatever points and just wrap up what we what we think? Um, I mean, I think uh, I think you're you're absolutely right about you hear that language of erasing people's existences, and I think this this comes down to this conflation of words and violence, which is something that we really desperately need to resist because they are not the same thing. Because what that really is is a strategy to say that we shouldn't have this discussion, because what you're doing is inflicting violence upon me, and I think it's really dangerous. But um, in terms of the younger people and their anxieties, I mean, I think young people have always been anxious and have always had these 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 problems, and I th I think one of the reasons why I am so optimistic is because I have been talking at universities and going to and speaking to students. And I think most students are sick of this, you know, and, and you, you, f you hear this all the time about the snowflake generation and the generation Z and they're all so, you know, so fe feeble and uh, they're, they're not. Some of them are, there's a small minority. There is a problem with resilience in that generation. I don't deny that, but that's, that's our generation's fault. But, the, but, the, but loads of students that you talk to actually, they, they want to move beyond this, they're sick of it. They're just afraid and they end up capitulating with the loudest and most aggressive voices among them. Uh, so I think don't write off the young generation. That's what I'd say. Don't at all. Uh, I, I think they're more on board than, than you realise. I, um, I second that. Uh, just add one thing to it, which is uh, I, uh, in Matters of Crowds, I do these sort of interlude chapters. And one of them, which I, I wish I could get people to focus on more, is, is about the issue of forgiveness. And... I'm sympathetic to the um, to the so-called snowflake generation because I think that they are in a situation unparalleled in human history. That the connectivity, which we all know the virtues of, has terrible, terrible downsides. And if I could sum that up in one way, it's Hannah Arendt says in the fifties in in, an, in a lecture she gave that action in the world was always terrifying because we never knew how to undo an action. That it's everything is it's impossible to undo every word. We, never, we never did know as a species how to do that, other than one, one mechanism we had to deal with that, which was forgiveness. Now, the generation growing up now lives in a world where acting in the world has never been more perilous. You might tweet something, post something, a photograph, a comment, be friends with somebody, bang, you're over. How do you come back? Nobody cares. Nobody spends any time focusing on it. Nothing in the culture, none of the adults, Everyone's too keen taking out their enemies. Everyone's too happy to get some short-term gain from it. Nothing in the society focuses on how we get out of it. So when a young person looks at this and becomes terrified of acting, I'm not surprised. I would be. So the job of adults, as it were, in that situation is to try to find a way not just to strengthen young people and help them get through this life that was never exactly easy. There was no generation that came through life and said, well, that was a doddle. <laughs> but not just to help them get through, but to help them find ways out. This is the sort of thing the adults should be focusing on. And if we weren't focusing on the navel gazing of identity politics and working out exactly where we stand in every grievance hierarchy and where we are in the privilege chain to today, perhaps that's the sort of thing we'd have worked out by now, or at least be thinking about. And that's why I say there's an opportunity cost there's a massive opportunity cost to wasting the most privileged generation in history on identity issues when we should be doing so much more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm
Listen, uh, thank, thank you guys for coming. Excuse guys, sorry about the gendered language. Uh, th th I, um, right, so, uh, and I, I would really urge you to read Douglas's book, The Madness of Crowds. It's brilliant. I urge you to read Tanya. Thank you very much. Uh, Douglas is going to be signing copies of his book over on the mezzanine uh, by the bookshop. Uh, there are a limited number of copies available to buy, so go over there and buy one, and Douglas will sign and sign them for you. But I really urge you to read it; it's a fantastic piece of work. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts and subscribe to them, visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you.